<laughs> and welcome to Father Spitzer's Universe. Coming to you live from Phoenix, from the Convention Center, our wonderful family celebration. I'm Doug Keck, normally the gatekeeper in Irondale, uh, the gate that leads to faith and reason, but we have beamed down here in Phoenix. Uh, and of course, I'm here joined on stage, as always, with our own Father Spitzer, the star, literally the star <laughs> right. of the program. And Father, since this is the way we start every show, you have to start off with a Absolutely. prayer. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all your blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. Please send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do say and understand will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom, asking all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this is a special edition we're doing. Uh, so in the first segment, we're going to be talking about the Shroud of Turin, something uh, you know I asked you to bone up on before the show. So, <laughs> so you might have something to say about it. Uh, and then later, we're going to have another segment with our TV hosts, and then finally, a segment with many of our radio hosts. But let me ask you one question, question Father, because this is the first time you've been at an EWTN family celebration. No. What, what's your sense of it? It's amazing. I mean, people here are just filled with joy and energy and spirit, and uh, I mean, uh, it's just uh, truly a, a wonderful uh, congregation of people. I can't help but think that uh, people's faith is being inspired here, and certainly my uh, sense of, uh, of the crowds that are here, uh, it's a, a real great expression of gratitude for what EWTN is bringing to them, and so uh, I think it's uh, really, truly, yeah much more positive than I could have ever expected. I was, I was overwhelmed by the number of people who've just been coming up to me and, uh, and uh, expressing their thanks for um, everything that EWTN's doing. Right, and absolutely, and all of us at EWTN, I'm sure our EWTN family wants to thank you personally for your wonderful work on the program. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's talk about one of the topics you like to talk about. You talked sure. about it at the recent radio conference that we just had here for our radio, wonderful radio affiliates. Some may still be here, but uh, you know, you've always seemed to have had an interest in this particular topic. And I was wondering, since you're a man of faith, why are you trying to explain the faith by something that's materialistic? Well, you know, um, I've worked with young people for a long, long time, and. I, you know, about uh, 11 years ago, I was finishing up as a president of a university, but prior to that, I was a professor and met a lot of young people for a long time. And I think there's a lot of young people out there who really want to believe in Jesus. They find his message very compelling and credible. They certainly would follow him in his moral teaching, but they get hung up on thinking, Ah, oh, you know, uh, not so much did he really exist. That's more of a question that high school kids get into because they get sucker punched by, you know, Jesus was just made up by an Egyptian cult or something. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, nobody of adult maturity really believes these things, but sometimes high school kids will do it. The college kids get hung up on, 
really this resurrection, I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, I read this thing, right? What well, was looking at the History Channel and the Jesus Seminar said this, <laughs> or, you know, somebody in my uh, theology class said this. And I just uh, want to just stop it all right in, in, if I can and just give them some clear, empirical, scientifically based evidence that says, okay, here's the evidence. I'm laying it out. I think this is the burial shroud of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think the dating evidence is overwhelming. The 1988 carbon dating was so bogus, it's unbelievable. And now the evidence is really coming out how bogus this thing was. And now uh, uh, we have so much evidence uh, about, you know, from the blood uh, stains all the way down to, you know, the anatomical examination of the blood stains. It's brand new. It's, it's, it's utterly remarkable correlating. Uh, the, uh, the shroud with the crucifixion of Jesus. And now the resurrection evidence, especially with the new particle radiation theory, that explains all 32 enigmas on the shroud that say, you know, that literally Jesus, uh, Jesus that image came from a thermonuclear, uh, uh, low temperature thermonuclear uh, reaction that mm -hmm. took place um, when uh, every single stable atomic nuclei in the, in the body of Jesus uh, uh, actually went through nuclear disintegration. And when that occurred, uh, it gave rise to a neutron flux and also a flux of deuterons and protons, positively charged particles that gave rise to the image. I mean, a miracle. I mean, listen, I, there, there's no example in the history of humankind, perhaps explaining why this is the most uniquely uh, unique image in, in the whole world. But we don't have any example of a body literally undergoing thermonuclear uh, disintegration simultaneously, trillions and trillions and trillions of atoms right. doing this, giving rise to a flux. We, want, gives... we want to let people know that we will provide a translation later. <laughs> <laughs> just enumerated uh, but uh, <laughs> but but also you, you, would you say your understanding of the shroud and belief in it has grown over the years oh without a doubt because the evidence is just piled up i myself in 1988 when i read the results of the carbon dating i just threw up my arms and i said I don't know how this is possible. I don't know how this could be a forgery. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how this could be only 700 years old. I, I was just so absolutely flabbergasted by this result. But nevertheless, it was three reputable labs, uh, one in Zurich, uh, one in, uh, in Oxford, one in um, uh, uh, you know, Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. And so I just basically said, oh, well, okay, I guess I gotta, I'm gonna go with the science. That's what I've been trained to do. And then finally, uh, the evidence started creeping out. Uh, back in 1998, Dr. Ray Rogers did the thermochemical, uh, the mass spectrometry, the particle spectrometry. Uh, then uh, he actually found carbon, uh, not car carbon, cotton right. uh, fibers embedded in the samples uh, and uh, with a gum dye mordant that was dyed to make it look the same color as the linen. Yeah. And then I began to think, ah, oh, That was ah, repair work that had happened. That, re that right. exactly came from repair work because a sample had been taken from a very controversial spot that was burned in the fire of Chambéry. And then these sisters came and did this invisible uh, mending procedure mm. uh, to, to you know, patch it up because of the, 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 the silver had sunk uh, you know, little holes into the, 
into the shroud. So they patched it up, but they had to use cotton fibers mm -hmm. that were dyed to look like um, the same color as the linen cloth. The shroud is totally linen. There's no cotton in it except for in the repair spots. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of a sudden I got this glimmer of hope. I thought, aha. So I wasn't so wrong after all. But then, you know, I kind of waited around and then other things began to happen. Uh, the next thing that happened was um, uh, Dr. Tristan Casabianca. You know, he, he basically, I mean, he, he put in so many different freedom of information requests from the British Museum to get the raw data to do the statistical analysis uh, on the shroud. And he found so much stratification variegation mm -hmm. in those samples that there's no possible way that it could date this back to the Middle Ages. Absolutely impossible uh, from the statistical analysis. And this, by the way, I, I cannot believe that two peer-reviewed journals in, in the British Museum did not know this for 30 years. I, I just cannot believe this. I, Do you I believe it a little more recently with the level of lack of peer review and some of the things that have come out in science recently that... Uh... Yeah, well, that's, pro that's certainly possible. And I think something happened where the peer review process in Nature Magazine got fouled up because there's no way you could look at that uh, raw data and do a statistic. You think there was an intentionality of not wanting it to work out, so to speak? Um, I hate to say there was fraud, but I'm saying maybe there was a lot of wishful thinking and trying to push the evidence to where it should not have gone. Gotcha. And so uh, short of saying fraud, it was as close to fraud as you could get. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it really, there's something really wrong with, with that review process. Right. And then the third thing that came out is, you know, when the cotton, uh, there, there's uh, these little um, particles that are embedded in the shroud, and they're pollen fossils, basically. Right. And, they, and uh, Max Fry had identified a plethora of pollen fossils that came from around um, uh, the first century, but uh, I'll tell you how we get to that in a moment. But uh, they came mostly from northern Judea and from Jerusalem. That's the largest number of pollen grains comes from that area with seven um, of those pollen grains coming exclusively. They're unique to northern U uh, Judea and Jerusalem. They, they're never found outside that region. And they're embedded. That's the largest number. And then, you know, if you um, take the next largest number, it's from Edessa, Turkey, then Constantinople. Constantinople. And Europe is the last Do you number. think it's almost reflecting a journey, in a sense? Yeah, it definitely affecting a journey. But more than this, if the shroud had only been around 700 years, as the carbon dating indicated, then it, the shroud would have had to have been in Europe the entire time, because we have a provenance for the shroud, a 700 year provenance starting in Leary, France, going up to Turin, Italy for 700 years. But the shroud couldn't have been in, in Turin and in Leary, France, in Europe for 700 years, because you have this huge plethora of pollen grains from the Middle East, Northern Judea, from Edessa, Turkey, and Constantinople. I mean, it, it would have had to have been in those places at least 200 years each mm -hmm. in order to get that plethora of pollen grains. How can you say this? The shroud was only there for 700 years. That made it look even more bogus. And finally, we get now 
to the um, what's called the X-ray, uh, the wide-angle um, X-ray right. scattering uh, test that was just done by Liberato Di Caro uh, just very recently in in uh, twenty. Yeah, we talked to, we talked April. about it on the show. Remember? Yeah, we right, talked yeah. about it on the show. show. Well, interestingly enough, as you read the the thing going down, uh, uh, Di Caro says, "Hey, listen." The, the, this 700-year uh, uh, dating, that would be impossible. If the wide-angle X-ray scattering test is even remotely correct, mm. then if the shroud was uh, here for only 700 years, then it would have had to have been in an ambient secular temperature higher than the temperature, the highest temperatures on the Earth for the, all of that 700 years, day and night. So 150 degrees Fahrenheit, day and night, every single day it existed. Now, Turin, Italy's got winters. Leary, France has got winters. They go up, they go down, they have variance, and they never reach 150 degrees. I can assure you of this, not even one day's worth. So, I mean, let's face facts. This is just bogus. It's proven bogus by four different tests. This 1988 carbon dating needs to be rejected. Let's go back to the other dating procedures that have been done. Well, Liberato Di Caro did the whitening electric dating. That goes back to between 55 to 74 AD, and that's a very high certainty that has been, that test has been peer reviewed over two years in separate journals unrelated to the shroud sample. Then the shroud samples dated to 55 to 74. Giulio Fonti did a Fourier transform uh, infrared spectroscopy. He also did a, um, a Raman laser spectroscopy. He also did a mechanical uh, tension and compressibility test. You put all those together, they come out to 90 AD with a 95% confidence level. So somewhere between 55 to 90 AD, let's just settle somewhere in the neighborhood of around 70 AD um, is what they're placing this shroud. But didn't uh, our Lord pass earlier than that? So He did, but... So why wouldn't it be earlier than that? Well, he, 70 AD. 70 AD is destruction of Jerusalem. Right? Yes, but 70 AD is the is basically you're combining four different tests, right? I mean, but one thing is is sure. 70 AD is well within spitting distance. I see. And the and what's called the, the reasonable margin margin of error of those tests uh, coming very close to about 33 AD, and that uh, that spitting distance of 40 years okay. that's quite different than 700. Uh, years old only. This is showing it's, it's, it's 1,300. It's pretty close. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty Just close. Just like we are pretty close to ending this first segment. Wow. So okay. We are going to take a break so we can bring out our wonderful television uh, hosts in the next segment of Father Spitzer's Universe. Stay with us. And we are back here at the family celebration, Phoenix, Arizona. There's a lively crowd here. It's wonderful. In our universe, of course, with our, our star. Uh, 
<laughs> of course, Father Robert Spitzer. And now we entered the multiverse here. We've got a multiverse <laughs> as we've now added uh, several uh, supernovas on their own. <laughs> One and only Father Mitch. We said he'd be on a steel cage match <laughs> with, uh, with Father Mitch. I think this is the first we've had the, the two Jesuits side by side. And program, so Trouble far. hitting now. Uh, right. Let's go. There you go. Oh, yeah. And of course, uh, the lovely uh, Janet Williams, of course. <laughs> and a man still on a journey. We have our own Marcus Gordai. <laughs> so we wanted to talk in this segment with uh, this uh, brain trust of, of EWTN uh, to talk about uh, the idea of evangelizing, especially today. We talk about evangelization, the new evangelization, and especially the idea uh, of using the visual medium mm -hmm. to, to do that. Mm -hmm. So, Father, if you can kick off with a short uh, answer on, uh, on, on your take on that, what you're doing and how you see the visual medium being used right now for evangelization, especially of young people, I guess. Yeah, my area is uh, more the young people, and. Uh, I see visual uh, media being used in multiple ways, of course, uh, getting the scientific message across, especially through the television uh, waves, is very, very important because faith and science are um, uh, very important. Uh, the Pew survey says that the number one reason that young people are leaving the church, 42% of them are leaving simply because they mistakenly believe that faith and science are contradictory and there's no evidence for God or for um, the soul from science. And so um, I, that's my principal ministry. Uh, I see EWTN has been uh, very, very helpful in getting the message across and people say, well, you know, the demographic is older than young people and EWTN, but oh no, the word gets out absolutely gets out, they get a, it certainly gets out to college students. We also use uh, visual media uh, to, um, through the YouTube channels, uh, and we try to take a lot of our YouTubes from EWTN and project them into social media areas where um, young people are visiting absolutely. Instagram Right. and um, uh, Facebook. I want you to know that we've done some recent carbon dating of our audience. Oh, no, no. So, no, but uh, there are ways of adapting <laughs> all of these programs. But speaking of wisdom, we have our own Father Mitch Packer, who's a scriptural expert. What about your take in a sense of your reaching out and how medium, even what you're working on to reach young people in evangelization? On one hand, when I went to graduate school, I made sure that I did it here in the United States. My field is Old Testament. And I did that because of two things. One, the American language of religion is rooted in the Bible because we are such an overwhelmingly Protestant culture. If you can't talk about where certain doctrine is in scripture, people in this country have great difficulty accepting it. They, the Bible is the basic source of conversation. So that was one thing. And then I also wanted to make sure I did my studies in America, that it suggests that I go to the Biblicum in Rome, but I didn't want to do that. Uh, which, and it's a great education, it's a superb education, very international, you get a very 
international flavor, but we have to pay attention to the American concerns to evangelize our folks. And I wanted to stay in this country right. to, to study here and be able to get at the itches that people have. Scratch where they itch, not where I want them to be. And that's very important. So that was, uh, it has been key to what I do. Um, you know, the science is not my strong suit, uh, but, you know, working with the scriptural text, scriptural language, and that worldview uh, as a way to enter into people's religious discourse. That's... Right, and your wonderful program, Scripture and Tradition, which yeah. has allowed us to do that. And Jeanette, of course, uh, you reach out to everyone, but in many cases specifically towards, towards women. And, and women are such a vital part of the church. Uh, what about young women and, and using your program to reach out to young women? Well, you know, I find that the issues that our young people are facing today are issues that have never been faced by a generation uh, before. And so we're trying to use that medium to be able to express the truth in a way that young people will understand and also open the opportunity for them to explore the rich treasure of Holy Mother Church. And as you were saying, Father Spitzer, the fact that faith and, uh, faith and uh, science, reason and science are, are not separated, right? Our, the beautiful realities that we have within our, our faith only go to prove what science is discovering, you know? And I think that the answers to so many of the social problems that we have are right there within the context of our Catholic faith. So I, I want young people to understand that and to know that they have um, a place or a source through EWTN and all of its programming, but through our program in particular, where they're going to hear that truth and in that truth they're going to be set free. Marcus, in your case, in, in dealing with, with things like this, obviously having been a convert, being focused into a show that, that has to do with conversions, but people may not remember the fact you're a trained engineer. How does that impact how you view yourself in relation to some of the way you de deal with people and, and, and conversions and reaching younger people today, especially with your son taking over the program? Right. Well, the, I think... Any of you that know what I've been doing for the last 25 years with the Journey Home Program, and even what my son, John Mark, has been doing with the Network, he and I are working together, is everybody is reached a little differently. We're, you know, there's different arrows in the quiver for reaching different people. Mm -hmm. And I think the emphasis that we have felt the Lord was pushing us all these years was the use of story, people's stories. And so in the midst of the story, it might be the apologetics, might be... Uh, the arguments, but it really was the experience of somebody being turned by the Holy Spirit. And so we've invested our effort on allowing people to tell their story, and then that reaches a great variety of people. I can envision a group of people where maybe a lot of them are really engaged in the argument, the scientific argument, they just love it, and then there's a couple people sitting back there that that's not connecting but a story might be the one that opened their hearts, and then to hear the scientific data. Yes, I, I've got boxes of science and religion stuff because I thought that's what I would do with my life, and I just had to keep putting it away because I do believe that's an area, especially the church needs to be more involved with, our universities, our Catholic universities. Where, yeah. where are there courses in science and religion from a Catholic perspective yeah. to especially challenge 
young men and women who are going into science to know that we need to have the best Catholic engineers who are working out there in the world to be a witness <laughs> in, in the midst of industry. Absolutely. And, and, and with you, Father Spitzer, Father Mitch talked about his sense going into his studies, where he wanted to do, he had a sense of that. Mm -hmm. When is it that you decided to focus on the fact of reaching younger people? Obviously, you were in education, you were at a couple of universities, Gonzaga. Mm -hmm. Was it then that that came to you, or was that something that led you to actually become a college president to begin with? Well, um, yeah, it was it went pretty early on. I mean, I, uh, I was in graduate studies, actually, and uh, oh, just the debates, you know, uh, on this whole issue in the philosophy of science area during my graduate uh, studies, and uh, even the discussions uh, that were highly animated. And e even in those days, you know, the singularity equations had already been published. Uh, that looked very, you know, um, important for establishing a creation of the universe. Uh, then, of course, the fine-tuning coincidences, then a series of other things began to uh, manifest themselves. The low entropy argument when um, Roger Penrose wrote his book, The Emperor's New Mind, and, you know, looking at the odds of having our low entropy by pure chance and, you know, it's 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 to 1, which is the same as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare by random tapping of the keys in a single try. And that low entropy was absolutely necessary for any life form to develop. All of a sudden, you're starting to think, ah, I don't think this happened by pure chance. And so uh, uh, once that uh, conclusion kind of came out, you know, it started rolling. And I thought, that's what I really want to do. Uh, my, my dissertation director was uh, William Wallace, who was a, uh, a philosopher of science, and Paul Weiss, who was a metaphysician, but very uh, you know, uh, influential in this area. And so uh, you know, they said, well, why don't you write it on time theory, which is the big connection between the natural world and metaphysics, and uh, then go from there. So I did that, and then uh, uh, when I was uh, you know, one month out of grad school and uh, teaching at Georgetown, um, I have to tell you, <laughs> the Georgetown kids wanted the science. Right. Uh, they were the ones that I could feel the demand just kind of right. issuing forth. And so I made my decision right then and there, this is what I'm going to do. Now, uh, now with you, Father Mitch, as far as like the Old Testament and things of scripture, mm -hmm. uh, do you have a sense, uh, we were talking earlier about the Shroud of Turin, and that the more they study it, the more it shows to be true. It seems like the more archaeology and things look into the history of the Bible, more and more of that is turning out to be discoverable and there. Yeah. Do you see that as an aspect of, of showing younger people or people out there the reality of Scripture? Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that oftentimes happens is certain parts of the Bible are taken out of the context. That's, as a matter of fact, the principle. You take a text out of context for a pretext of error. Mm -hmm. That goes on all the time. And in one of the biggest scandalous, uh, most scandalous parts would be the conquest of the land of Canaan, with the Israelites going in and conquering people. But now as we look at the archaeology as well as the con wider context, you know, we see that this was going on in a complete collapse of the whole late Bronze Age 
every society in the Eastern Mediterranean and Mesopotamia was in thorough collapse all at once and for a variety of reasons. And the Israelites were part of it. We can see the more we study some of the pharaohs and the other dynamics going on that it makes sense of what was going on. Ramses II had been one of the most energetic, warlike kings of Egypt until the second half of his reign, and he just stopped. And that's precisely when Joshua and the Israelites came into the country. Mm. And you know, there's there are lots and lots of elements of archaeology. And when you get to the New Testament, it's you know more difficult with the old because there's the the information is a bit more difficult to recover at times. But we see the uh, casket uh, of the high priest Caiaphas was discovered with his other family members. A stone monument by Pontius Pilate was discovered, and a number of other things. These are all big helps, and they don't prove that the resurrection happened, but they show us that this is all part of a context that's very real. And the skepticism that a lot of people have, well, uh, how come this isn't in the, the pagan literature? Why didn't the Romans write? Well, actually, they did. Suetonius mentions it, and um, some of the other historians mention it. So we, we have information, and this is a support. You still have to make the act of faith, but there are these other supports. Which is helpful. Again, it makes it more reasonable, as yep. we would say. Yep. Now, Jonah, you deal with you know women of faith and things like that. But one of the things you you always had an interest in and dealt with early on was kind of the New Age concerns. I know Father Mitch did too, mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Where do you see that in relation to uh, you know young people today getting caught up in what really is New Age, but it's become so secularized they don't even recognize it. And I think that that's the big problem. You know, back in the day, back in 1992, when I first began to research the New Age, and Father, that was about the time that you were writing your book, Catholics yeah, yeah. in the New Age, right? Published it that year. That's right. And we did a 13-week series on EWTN on the New Age. At that time, it was a marginal group of individuals. It looked a little peculiar. It wasn't fitting into the general uh, you know, milieu of the culture of the day. Uh, so it was very definable. You could see it and recognize it. But what's happened, I think, uh, in these intervening decades is as we have grown more secular and more, more humanistic, right? Um, nature abhors a vacuum, and so does the spiritual world. So if it's not filled with truth, it's going to be filled with falsehood. So once you begin to leave God out of the equation and you begin to move away from the Judeo-Christian ethos, what ends up happening is something fills it. And what's filled it is the new age, because there's a part of our being that's always longing for the spiritual. So it's not receiving truth, it's going to receive falsehood. So I think that what the, the problems that we're seeing, and of course we continue to do this work, we have a program on um, our Women of Grace Live uh, radio uh, show 
every Wednesday with Sue Brinkman. We call it Wacky Wednesday. We talk about everything wacky <laughs> going on out there. Uh, you know, the, the problem that we have today is not only has this become part and parcel of what our young people are involved in, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also become part and parcel of the curricula that they're receiving in their mm -hmm. schools. And it, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say this, but feel that I must. Uh, unfortunately, much of this has infiltrated our Catholic schools as well. So we cannot invest a sense of security in what our children are learning today. We've got to investigate it clearly. Uh, we have, uh, and you can talk to any exorcist you want to talk to, and the number of cases, their, their caseload is, is, has exponentially increased. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, have a, a greater caseload than they can actually fulfill most of the time. So th this is playing with fire. Uh, and unfortunately, we're allowing our young children to become absolutely deluded and involved with it. Right. Now, Marcus, uh, and again, focusing a little bit on the, as a convert and the conversion and story, uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about the idea that the change in what you've seen over the last 25 years in who's coming into the church as opposed to who yeah. we see today. And, and I was just wondering, do you see different issues for people today than maybe there was before? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about this publicly, but we're just here, right? No one's hearing us. It's just us. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I know that I've got sharper knives in the drawer sitting at this than, than me. But if I were to have said in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, what was the key issue that brought people into the church, it would have been the issue of authority. Um, you know, there's lots of issues you hear in the journey home, but maybe authority, in other words, scripture alone doesn't work. And, and so the issue of authority of the church. And it, it has seemed to me in my experience that there has been a drop of conversions over the last 25 years, like we're on the other side mm -hmm. of a bell curve. It just seems that way. Um, we're still seeing many. There's always been a thin stream but it seems less, and if I were to ask the problem, it, I would say it is the scandal of, of the church. It, but I think that there's a sense in the media and maybe even amongst Catholics of a sense of doubt about the trustworthiness of the infallibility of the church. You know, this, it seems that the church is freer to change its mind on things. Mm -hmm. And whether it's true or not, there's a sense, even as we see a synod gathering in Germany in which they think they have the authority to change things as if development is in their own hands. That's not what Newman meant. That's not what Vatican I meant. And I think that's affecting our separated brethren, for example, a clergy who are going to have to give up a vocation and a calling to come into a church. And before it was because here's a church I can trust. Now the question is, wait a second here. And it might be putting a pause in their journey. I don't know, uh, fathers, whether you yep. feel that that's something, but that seems like what I'm seeing. And sadly, I think we're playing into it as a church because we're so flippant about the kind of development thinking. Yeah. Newman posed this idea of development to try and explain why the church seems different than it was. Well, but now that word development is flipped around to describe everything. Yep. I, I, I would say that as the progressive side of the church tries to imitate the progressive Protestant denominations that are not dying, but are committing suicide. Mm 
-hmm. They're suicidal. And the progressives want to do the same among us. And this is where we have to say, no, Jesus is my life. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the way. Not So just before we wrap up this segment, Father, I'd like maybe you to encapsulate everything or, or, or talk about how you see things related to these particular issues as, as we're reaching out to young people, credible Catholic, all the other various outlets you have. Well, I think that uh, uh, all of us have our various ministerial ways. I know that uh, Mitch, uh, Father Mitch does uh, uh, quite a bit uh, too with his YouTubes and, uh, and uh, other kinds of medium and plays to it. But I think all of us just in the evangelization effort, it, it, you know, EWTN is central to that effort. It's central not only because of the live broadcasts and not only because of the uh, various ways in which you use already your own uh, YouTube channel, which is really extensive. Right. Um, and uh, I just think uh, we can have our own social media outlets that we can utilize. I think women's issues are hugely important uh, because I think there's a good deal of alienation on, on that level that I think could be cured with, um, you know, Jeanette's good... Uh, uh, work and uh, with the good spiritual content of her programs. I think uh, Marcus said too about stories is, uh, is absolutely critical um, that uh, a good story, you know, sometimes people, you know, just don't relate to science, mm -hmm. but a good story will open the heart and that'll be the entryway uh, for a whole group of people. So I think every one of us has to bring our uh, various gifts to bear. But above all, uh, I think what Father Mitch ended up with there that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I think that is the, the key thing we have to keep coming back to. Right. Because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. Right, and, and this is the end of this segment, so it's a perfect <laughs> out. Thank you so much, Marcus, uh, Jeanette, of course, Father Mitch, and our own Father Spitzel will stay here. We'll be joined shortly here on this special edition by a radio panel. Stay with us. Thank you so much for staying with us for this special edition from the Arizona Phoenix family celebration. And we picked up some radio waves and they've uh, <laughs> decided to uh, arrive here on our stage to join us along with Father Spitzer. First, we've got uh, Debbie Georgiani and, of course, Jerry Usher from Take Two, uh. one of the radio show. Kristalina Everett, podcaster galore, and uh, EW10 Radio. Up. And of course, the walking encyclopedia, as far as calls him, <laughs> Dr. David Anders. <laughs> and before we get into uh, talking specifically about uh, evangelizing through the radio, one of the things I always thought was great was Dr. Anders and, and, and Father Mitch Pack were always great. They'd be answering questions 
and somebody would see them and have a computer open, and somebody were thinking they were pulling up the answers. You yeah. go there, and I don't know what he was looking at. Father Mitch plays solitaire usually well as he. But let's talk about that, Father, again, because we're reaching uh, young people in all different ways. And, you know, there's visuals, television, and there's audio, you know, in the sense of podcasts especially. They're, they're visual, many of them, but a lot of them are audio podcasts that people download. Uh, yeah. What do you think is different about reaching people through, through, through the word differently than in a visual context like that? Well, I mean, you know, I definitely work with young people. Uh, mostly I'm aiming at them, uh, uh, trying to keep them within the faith. And I think radio and especially podcasts, both of, of those things, um, are young people are very open to them. Uh, although they do like visuals and they like first you know, class videos and so forth and so on. Uh, they do like uh, uh, podcasts. They do very much uh, um, uh, have certain ones that they have ranked, and um, and so I think it uh, it's a uh, number one. Uh, it's usable in ways that the videos are not, because uh, you can listen to these podcasts with the smallest devices. You can even listen right. in class. Just kidding, but uh, rather than <laughs> listening to your lecture, exactly. Okay. So, uh, but it it is. Uh, a very popular medium still, and people said, oh, well, radio has been transcended. It has not been transcended, and a lot of people listen in cars, right, yeah. can't look at videos. So much content is appropriated in the automobile, it's, and certainly in California and Texas. Right. I don't have to go any further, but uh, it's uh, pretty clear that uh, young people still use it, and I think those podcasts and social media, they're so accessible. And you know, it's amazing how they, you know, they use these things now in the social media, adapt the podcast. We certainly do at Modges, adapt those podcasts for. Uh, right, for, absolutely. Uh, well, I remember during the in, in the olden times when they had cassettes, they used to call us tapeworms. Yeah. <laughs> you had all the audio cassettes, and that's while you right. were mowing the lawn or whatever, you could that's listen right. to this. So, that's right. So uh, Debbie and Jerry, I'll put you together on this one in a sense because of Take Two. It, it was you guys came to us with that particular program. It's kind of a unique idea yeah. uh, from some of the other things we've we, we've done. Why don't you talk a little bit about it and where you came up with that idea? Why don't you go first? Okay. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, thanks everyone for being here. Um, the concept of the show, actually, when I when I I was at Catholic Answers, hosted Catholic Answers Live for a number of years, and then I was doing a, a lot of station pledge drives around the country, so I had to discern a decision, and God led me to go with the, do, helping the stations with their pledge drives. But from the day I left there, Dave Vacheris, who was the general manager at EWTN Radio at the time, he was after me every time we talked. He said, brother, brother, we got to get you back on the radio. We got to get you back on the radio. And I said, Dave, that's the reason I left, is because I just don't have the time to do it. But over the, about the two or three year period, I was, I was sensing God put in, putting this concept on my heart. And actually the show as it is right now is very different than what we originally conceptualized, but that's because God has helped it grow organically and it's really become about the listeners. We try and make it, uh, give the listeners a platform. Everybody has a story to tell. And I think people love the opportunity. We, we tell them it's, it's take two with Jerry and Debbie and you. And you are the ones who drive the show each and every day. So um, it's just really, it, it is unique, Doug. And we, we appreciate the opportunity to do it very, very much. I don't know, you can probably clean up my mess there. I know, I, <laughs> I would agree with everything Jerry said. I would just say, doesn't Arizona love the EWTN family celebration? <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. 
Okay, so yes, that with Take Two, it is definitely a platform for the laity to speak. We um, invite all of you to come in with your takes, your lived experiences, your stories. Like Jerry said, the Christian witness is very, very powerful. And, and the Take Two family um, joins in each and every time we do a live broadcast, and it is exceptional. It's not just a normal broadcast. It is amazing what we learn from all of you. So we love the fact that you've embraced Take Two, and I know you go to great lengths to get Take Two, and you, and you follow <laughs> it, and you have breakfast with us every weekday. <laughs> so we just say thank you so much, because we're learning and growing together, and that, we believe that's the mystical body of Christ in action. So, and, we, and I was so excited about the family celebration, because it was in Arizona, but I have to tell you, Father Spitzer listens to our show, and I was like so excited. <laughs> that's like the best news ever. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> and he's one of many. So. <laughs> one of many. <laughs> now, Crystalina, and, and Father was talking about, and we mentioned podcasts, you're, you're kind of fits, fit into that, that realm of a younger, reaching younger people, targeting those people who are on the TikTok platforms and the Instagram platforms. And so when you got into that, and from a, a radio side and also an auditory on the, on the podcast, how did you see you had to develop? Did you come in with certain ideas and learned there's different ways you need to reach the younger audience out there? Yes, as, as everything's just kind of growing and evolving, it's like you kind of have to grow and evolve to a certain extent, mm. hold your standards and your values and just find a way that you can convey that to that younger generation. And with my, my show, Women Made New, I really wanted to reach the struggling moms at home that are my age or even younger that are struggling with just today's issues and even past brokenness and wounds and just let them know, look, you're not alone. We're all in this together. You're not the only one having these types of struggles or battles, but I wanted to bring them to the forefront and I wanted to bring in people that knew exactly what they're going through, what I've gone through in my life and to help them and, and means and ways to get out of that. Just let them know like, I'm with you, Jesus is with you and EWTN is with you and we're all a family. We're in this together. Right, absolutely. Next, we've got Dr. David Anders. Now, I remember David Anders. He came on, I think it might have been Tom Price who, who recommended you to be on the Journey Home show. And he came on the show. And I remember watching, I think he seemed like a very pleasant, nice man. <laughs> the next day, the phone calls lit up like nobody's business. <laughs> who is this Dr. David Anders? He <laughs> and, and we just knew then, thank goodness he lived in Birmingham right now, the block virtually. <laughs> and here he wanders into EWTN and he's, he is an answer to a prayer. You talk about Providence, Michael talked about Providence. Yeah. He's Providence, he showed up. And, and we have the answer man for <laughs> asking people the question, why aren't you Catholic yet? What is it that's holding you back? And, and his encyclopedic knowledge is, is amazing. So when you got into radio and doing this, uh, when you first started you know, in your background, you weren't planning on being in media. So you got into this uh, through the web and then and going into the radio show. What have you learned about, about people and how people react and how people learn about the faith and the issues they have, especially younger people with your show. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, Doug, when, when I discovered EWTN as a listener before I was even Catholic, I had read my way to the threshold of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. I'd had the arguments, I had the abstractions down, and they made sense and they were compelling, but I hadn't made the, the spiritual jump 
the, the moral jump to actually enter the Catholic faith. And I was in my car one day in Birmingham, and I saw a bumper sticker for the local EWTN affiliate. And I, I well, that's interesting, so I flip on the radio, I start listening to Catholic Answers. I think you were on there, Jerry, and I started calling. And I called Jimmy Aiken and Carl Keating, and, and uh, that was a step for me. Uh, that, that was a process helping me towards the faith. And I eventually heard about this guy, you know, that had this show called uh, The Journey Home and The Coming Home Network. And, <laughs> and uh, I didn't realize they were in Ohio, but somehow I got a hold of their number. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I called up and I said, you know, I, I really need to talk to somebody who was a Protestant that became a Catholic. Because the Catholics that I've met so far, they don't really understand my perspective. You know, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Do you guys know anyone in Birmingham? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they said, well, have you ever heard of EWTN? I didn't know I was listening to something called EWTN. <laughs> and I said, never heard of it. And they said, well, you know, it's over here. And I was like, that's five miles from my house. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so I got involved at the network because I wanted to talk to a live person. I wanted someone to witness not just the abstractions, which I had worked out. I wanted to see them incarnate in a human life, right? And so I first got to the network. Uh, you know, I went to the St. Michael Hall and sat down and talked to people about their Catholic faith. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then, you know, people say, how do you get involved in Catholic radio? I said, it's very simple. Get a PhD, move five miles from EWTN, and then start <laughs> singing sing in the choir next to the program director's wife. Hilarious. Uh, Adrienne Price. And, uh, and so what I love about what I get to do is I feel like it's not just about giving people the intellectual answer, the academic answer, or the correct dogmatic answer. It, it's about listening to them as a human being and trying to bring the abstract truth to the particular need of that person. And, uh, and so, you know, I like to think that I, I try to care about the people that call and listen to what they're saying and to what they're not saying. And sometimes they need an answer, and sometimes they need charity, and they need presence, and they need accompaniment. And I really think that's the gift of Catholic radio. You know, people will rarely walk across the street to knock on your door and ask you about your Catholic faith. But they will absolutely call me and ask me about the Catholic yeah, faith. Right. And I get to be in people's cars and living rooms and in their lives. And the most frequent caller we get is a guy named Anonymous. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so he's very popular. He wrote a lot of quotes in over history, too. Uh, you see his name pop up. Father, for you, in, in the sense of, of talking about that and reaching out through radio, there is that ability for, for somebody in their car to participate, learn about the faith in a way without having to tell anybody. You know, St. Francis de Sales used to, in the middle of the night or morning, go run around and throw these little pamphlets under people's doors yeah. so that th because they, didn't, they would be persecuted if they knew where they were getting Catholic instruction. And so the great thing about auditory and the radio side is that people could do it and nobody has any idea what you're listening to. Oh, yeah, that's uh, um, the anonymity is, is sometimes very important. Mm. And now, of course, with all the various devices with earbuds, uh, they can d be double anonymous, but uh, in terms of what they're listening to, but we spend so much time in cars, mm -hmm. and we spend so much time in isolated areas where we can't get a hold of videos. But boy, with all the various new uh, devices, you know, phone devices, you can get podcasts and be listening to those things 24/7, uh, going from one place to the next. Even if you're not looking at a video, mm -hmm. you can definitely be tuning in. 
And I think when uh, the interesting thing about young people is if they have one good experience uh, on an audio um, podcast or something, they zero in, you know, for other, you know, others and still others and still others, especially if they're being fed. Mm-hmm. And I think um, we've got some great programming. I think uh, honestly, the uh, um, all of the programs that are represented here, I. I think are very intriguing, but uh, young people I do think will intersect with those uh, in many different ways. Uh, we just gotta get our uh, our wares out to them a little bit more so that they're gonna tune in right. uh, you know, instinctively. I think if they start listening, they will listen more. Right. Because it is, uh, you know, we are a serious uh, theological content station, whether we're doing stories, whether we're doing you know, theological questions in particular, whether we're doing faith and science, whatever it may be, I think um, you know, uh, we have serious content that I think they can lock in on. And, right. and, uh, and I think, uh, like I said, the opportunities especially. Right, people aren't looking for cotton candy Catholicism. Yeah. They want meat and Absolutely. they want something they can get into. With, with yeah. you guys, with, with Jerry and Debbie's program, one of the things that's great about it is not only is it the person who calls in, but it's the people who follow up on that call who join in, in a sense of reaching out and helping that person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we, we call it the Take-Two family, and, and people, it really was the listeners who kind of led us to that, to sort of that perspective on the program. And you're right, Doug, um, and, and not only, um, you know, follow-up uh, calls on the show, but we'll get emails, you know, can you, hey, this is for, you know, uh, so-and-so who called in, can you get this message to them? Unfortunately, we can't. But it just shows that people really are out there. They're living their lives. They're telling their stories. They're listening to other people's stories. And they want to support one another. It's just a really beautiful experience the way the listeners come in and and get right behind each other. Absolutely. I mean, I can't add a word to that. It's just amazing what we learn each and every day. You see all the emails that come in. I think they're forwarded up to you sometimes. And I'll tell you, it's... It, we sit in awe of our, of our callers and our listeners and the Take-Two family, and we're just so grateful to EWTN to air such a wonderful open platform for, for everybody to come together. And we have a lot of non-Catholics, atheists, and agnostics that call in as well. A couple of quick points before we go. Kristalina, in dealing with uh, busy young mothers especially, is timing how quickly you can convey something really important these days, have you seen? It is. Yes. But... In an ABC way, and not to dumb anything down, but you want to reach all levels of all Catholics. And I think we complicate Jesus. I think we complicate our faith. We complicate God. And people just want to right now know Jesus. They want to be loved. They want to know that they can get help. They want basic answers to basic questions because a lot of people don't know the basics of their Catholic faith. And that's what they're longing for. And I think coming at it in an ABC way really helps them right now. Mm-hmm. And just before we go, Dr. Anders, let me just ask you, when you're talking to people right now, what's the biggest hurdle for them in becoming Catholic? You know, I think the biggest hurdle for people in becoming Catholic is that they haven't seen Christ manifest in the lives of Catholics. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I think the most important that's thing we can do is assimilate our lives to Jesus. Right. That's a challenge for us. And Father Spitzer, if you want to give us, uh, we're just out of time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. If you want to give us your blessing on the way oh, out the door, as always, absolutely. that would be great. And may Almighty God bless all of you and send you into the world through this conference with a greater depth of uh, not just theological knowledge, 
but the awareness of Jesus Christ in your life, how much he loves you, how much he guides you, and how important the church is in making that message accessible to everyone. And may Almighty God bless you all, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And thank you to our wonderful panel. Thank you, Doug. Jerry and Debbie, of course, Dr. Anders and Kristalina, and of course, the one and only Father Spitzer. <laughs> We're just out of time. Thank you so much for joining us at this special edition, live edition from the family celebration of Father Spitzer's Universe. We'll see you next time.